Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. We engage in the study of the Hebrew Bible in its ancient Near Eastern context and original languages to promote good and reasonable interpretation of Scripture so that the church might live more faithfully in the present. Welcome to Hebrew Bible Insights, a podcast about making sense of the Hebrew Bible. I'm Matthew Delaney. I'm here with Dr. Nathan French. And today we're doing a very unique episode. I'm very excited about this. We This has been an interview long in the making. We're talking about a book called Interpreting Israel's Scriptures. If you're listening to this podcast, then you share a value with me and Nathan, which is we want to approach the Hebrew Bible in a holistic, responsible way. But how do we do that? All of us come from different backgrounds with different forms of training and education. Uh, we've all spent different lengths of time studying these texts. And there's there's so much to it. The, the deeper we get into the study of scripture, I think we all have those moments where we think we've reached a mountain peak, but then we realize that the expanse extends way beyond where we thought that it at once reached. And there's so many different tools that we want in our toolkit on the yeah. journey of exegesis. Mm. So for example, for me, my gateway into deep study of the Hebrew Bible was the Hebrew language. And for a couple of years, I lived in the Hebrew language space. It was so much fun for me to translate the text, to read this, the text in the Hebrew language. It was so engaging and great. But at some point I had to realize that all of these Hebrew words strung together are ultimately forming larger movements of either narrative or poetry. And I need to understand the structure of these books, how they were formed, what are they doing? And obviously the Hebrew language informs that, but there's more to grow. After a couple of years, I had to realize, yes, I can understand the big picture story of books like Genesis or what the, the different writings of Isaiah are doing, but what, what do these mean in their original historical context? At every stage in my journey, I've had different people who have helped me along the way. People like Lenore Mulliken and Don Vance with Hebrew. People like Tim Mackey and Tom Wright to understand the narrative of scripture. People like Dr. Nathan French to help me with the ancient history component. We all have our own gateway, but once we get through that, we want to mature and become more holistic by incorporating multiple methods in how we approach the text. And the book that we're talking about today, I think is gonna be a really helpful resource for people like us, uh, whether we're, we feel like we are experts, but we want to sharpen our, sharpen some of those tools we haven't used as much as others, or if we're starting at the very beginning and, you know, we're, we're still looking for what our, what our gateway entry is into deep study, or we only have one good tool. We want to get a few extra to go along the way. I think this is going to be a great book. It's called Interpreting Israel's Scriptures, a Practical Guide to the Exegesis of the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament by Matthew Richel. Here's the book and what it looks like. It's a beautifully well done book. Very um, much so. H Hendrickson always does a really good job with the yeah. quality of their materials. And he's a French scholar. So, you know, due to the dynamics there, uh, all of us thought it'd be best to do a written interview. Uh, that's what he preferred. And so we've we've written him some questions. He's written our responses. And we're going to read those to you. And then Nathan and I will discuss uh, beyond that. So um, we're excited to dive in and talk about this. Do you have any other general thoughts about being, about the, the kind of the aim and goal of being a holistic and responsible exegete of the Hebrew well, Bible before we discuss the book? No, you know, I thought that was an excellent intro. So well done and sort of sharing your own story, but I think it really covers very well um, uh, why we need exegesis. But the bottom line is this, that once you begin deep study into the, into the, into the Hebrew Bible or the biblical text, you find quickly that there are so many different layers of meaning um, that come with the text that, it requires a method. It requires a deep methodology. Uh, and the good news is, is that uh, scholars have gone before and they've provided their tools, talked about which tools are the best tools in order to understand the text uh, in, in its own right and in its own context. So what this book does is it truly is a practical guide to doing that. And um, I, I just, I, as you know, Monty, we've done, discussed this a lot, so I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but it's an excellent text that really provides a, uh, a deep understanding into the exegetical method so that we can, so that we can understand the text properly, um, 
in its in its own right. Excellent. You use the word practical, and that's also in the subtitle of the book. And mm -hmm. I think of anything that stands out the most, that would be top of my list. Absolutely. It is so practical. It truly is a handbook. Yeah. This feels like something that you can, you can, as you're trying to become a better exegete, you can reference this and it will help you in a very practical way. So mm -hmm. I really enjoy that element of the book. In fact, before we go to his official questions, I wanted to show everyone on YouTube, uh, sorry to our podcast listeners, you can hear me describe <laughs> the outline, but those of you on YouTube, you'll be able to see the outline of the book. How is it structured? What's his approach? So yeah. let me go ahead and pull that up. That's great. So the book is broken up into three major sections. Part one, he calls the making of the text. Part two, he calls the various facets of the text. And part three, he calls the reader in front of the text. So let's do a brief overview of what he's doing in each of these sections so you can get a feel of what he covers. In part one, the making of the text, he addresses a few major categories, first being translation, then textual criticism, and then um, compositional criticism. In a way, this is part one. It's compositional criticism analysis, mm -hmm. and then compositional criticism synthesis. And that's what makes up this first part. And one thing that you'll already note, I'm not going to do this for every section, but you'll see that for every chapter, he gives an overview, which is a really succinct way to describe what uh, this whole section is about. And then he breaks down what are the major tasks uh, in a big picture way still, though, what are the major tasks that you have to do, the responsibilities you have in order to accomplish that section well. Translation is probably not the best section for me to use as an example um, uh, for reasons he explains in the book. But you can take any any one of these sections. And so then he breaks up chapter three, for example, breaks down into 3.1, 3.2. Other sections have more like, you know, 3.3, 3.4, theoretically. And it's the different steps that you do. And then one of the best parts of the book is he gives so many examples. And so every single yeah. item that you do, he gives examples from the Bible. And he explains why that method impacts how we interpret that specific text. And he's hand-chosen sections that actually feel meaningful uh, and engaging. So it's not just the same. It's not like he said, okay, we're going to go through the book of Ruth and see how we apply all of these methods to Ruth. Right. He just chooses any section of verses or chapters for the whole book. And so if you look at chapter two, for example, he has 2.1, collect the evidence. 2.2. Uh, this, by the way, chapter two is about textual criticism. So 2.1 is collect the evidence. 2.2, compare the textual witnesses. 2.3, explain scribal mistakes. 2.4, explain intentional changes. Mm. 2.5, explain large-scale differences. And 2.6, explore the impact of the variance. So the steps are very succinctly put. And once you open up the book yourself, you can see he explains how do you go about doing that. And then he gives a bunch of examples. So 2.2, you see an example from 1 Kings 14.24. On scribal mistakes, he gives two different examples. On explained intentional changes, he gives four examples and so on. So this just gives you a feel for how he structured the book and how he approaches all the different areas. The last thing I'm going to say before we dive into the questions is I just want everyone to hear and or see what uh, he covers so we, he talks about uh, translation, textual criticism, compositional criticism, analysis, compositional criticism, synthesis. That's all the first section. Part two is the various facets of the text. This is where he goes into literary genre, literary context, historical geography, history, literary structure, poetry, narrative criticism, and intertextuality. Lastly, part three of the book, the reader in front of the text, he has a section on reception, uh, feminist and gender studies, and post-colonial criticism. So he covers all of the major, most popular methods that are being used by scholars today as a way to discuss uh, interpreting the Hebrew Bible. 
Do you have any other thoughts on the structure of the book that you kind of thought about as you were reading this for our review and our interview? Well, I, I think the structure is fantastic. And, I, and you know, throughout the book, he's giving all sorts of bibliographic information of different books that you can go to to help you understand the, that particular aspect of the methodology better. Um, and the examples, though, as you noted, are the best part. I mean, as you have examples right there in the text that he provides for every uh, subsection within uh, the the larger structure of the book is just is just really great. And I, I think he's laid it out um, quite methodically, and uh, in light of other books like this, uh, the structure is uh, similar. Um, it's just that uh, uh, this one is so thorough and so updated. It's it's really a treasure to have. Yeah, truly really excellent. So let's go ahead and let's dive into our questions. Yeah. I've been doing a lot of the talking so far. Do you want to, we'll have you read the first question sure. we had emailed him in reader's response. Yep. So I will here read the question. So question number one that we asked is in case people aren't familiar with your, with you or your work, can you tell us about yourself, how you got into Hebrew Bible studies and what you are passionate about in this field? And this was Rochelle's response. I have always wanted to study the Bible and as a believer and as someone who is interested in ancient history. In my family tree, you find some pastors, missionaries, and priests, and this background certainly influenced me. But my first profession was math teacher, and it's only when I began teaching that I started taking course, courses in theology and in Semitic languages. It soon became a passion, and the virus has never left me. I became a professor of Old Testament 13 years ago. My areas of expertise are textual criticism, the comparison of manuscripts, and uh, epigraphy, the study of ancient inscriptions. I tend to work too much, but thankfully, my wife, my two kids, and my Xbox help me keep in touch with normal life in that order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's in that order, just so you know. That's great. That Xbox is below uh, his two kids. That's right. You know, I like how he writes this. You already get a taste about one of the things in his book that I enjoy is he talks more personally. Um, his writing style, it feels more like he's talking to you uh, in a conversational way. Which yeah. Personally, I, I really prefer that style. I like yeah. that a lot. And you yeah. can get a feel for that even in the way he responds. No, no, to you this really question. do. Yeah. Um, and and I like too that that it's always fun to ask uh, professors and scholars how did you ever end up in this particular area of study and uh, inevitably it's, it's it's not always the case but it's it's nice to see that there is a sense in which a family background has a lot uh, a lot to play in it not not always but 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 in many cases it can be the case and uh, so it's fun to read about that here too so. Something else I like to point out is that he is a former math teacher. Yes. And I have found that some of my favorite people to interact with, whether it's Bible studies that I've been in or people that I teach biblical Hebrew to or professors I've studied under um, are in that kind of realm of intellect. So one <laughs> of the people I teach biblical Hebrew to, he works in the IT world. Yeah. One of my Greek and New Testament professors, uh, he was a former engineer. And there's just a different kind there of is. intelligence that mm -hmm. they bring to the table. And one of the things they tend to be a little better at, in my opinion, is clarity. Yeah. Because I think there might be a little more black and white, a little more numbers minded, mm -hmm. and they tend to just really track things down and find a really clear way to put it. Um, Cause they may not have that. I think sometimes people who are super into the humanities, we can become a little bit abstract a little bit more theory. Too philosophical, little, are we? Yes. Little, so. <laughs> too philosophical. so we need both sides. We need both. I, well, I it is true. I have a, I have a, I had a math major in one of my, what was it? Research seminar courses in undergrad. And, uh, but just a brilliant student. He was taking a theology course, going to do some, I think a minor in theology and his questions on biblical studies were so laced just logically. I loved it because it required just, uh, just a nice conversation about the logic of the text. And I think that that's really what we get from the mathematical perspective. And too, when it comes to laying out a book like what we have here, uh, I, you can sort of notice the structure. There's a real, there's a real crisp and clear and just full on logic to the structure. Uh, you get this, of course, and uh, like you like you were saying, and with with uh, other trained professors and scholars. But 
um, the mathematical side is certainly coming out. You can see it. So what I would encourage all our listeners with is you all have a different background that you bring when it comes to the study yeah. of the Hebrew Bible. And I'm sure that the people that you're studying with um, also enjoy that no matter what mm -hmm. it is, even if it's something as simple as you're a pretty funny person and you can bring humor to the teaching element. You know, I uh, took a class at Hebrew university called humor in the Bible with Ed Greenstein. It was fantastic. Really? Yes. It was all about <laughs> finding humor in the Bible and anyway, to write a paper on, on humor in a particular story. It was great. So how fun. Yeah. All right. Here's the next question we asked him. What inspired you to write a book about exegesis of the Hebrew Bible? And he said, 10 years ago, as a young professor teaching exegesis, I felt that my students desperately needed a methodology for doing the exegesis of biblical texts. I set to work on it one summer, but I was not planning to write a book, only an outline with bullet points and instructions. Then I could not help giving some examples, and soon I found out that I needed to explain things more clearly. I could not stop. The, um, <clears throat> at the end of the summer, I had written a book. The English version that just appeared is a considerably revised and expanded version of the French original. Nice. It's important to note that this book has, uh, is new to the English speaking world, but not new to the world. This book has been, I think about 10 years, if I remember right. Yeah. But this has been very influential in, in French speaking circles. So it's, it's tested and, uh, in that way, but also highly updated, as he mentioned, uh, everything's up to date. And now the English speaking world has access to his ideas. And it's been translated for us uh, by help uh, by his wife, right? Uh, I believe he said wife, his yeah. wife helped in the translation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, don't quote me on that. I I, okay. think, I think she had a, had a role in helping him. Okay, with that. so that's kind yeah. of fun. Imagine yeah. that tag team. Yeah, absolutely. But it is uh, it is nice to have this in the English speaking world, and uh, uh, it's in the. I'm going to use it in my next course, actually. So I'm doing a course on Hebrew exegesis and uh, and hermeneutics. And I am so excited to use it and uh, to see how the students are going to are going to be able to uh, uh, to step into exegesis after having done a year of Hebrew already. I like, too, that he says here that I felt that my students desperately needed a methodology. It is true that when you begin teaching scripture, uh, you realize, especially at a deep level, when you're using the Hebrew text, there, as we as we mentioned, you you find that there are multiple layers that bring meaning to the interpretation, and it's it. I I can I can relate to this. That there comes a moment where you're like these these students need something more um, defined, more of an outline in order to lead them through the text. I'm sure I'm sure you felt this way as you jumped into your own studies. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think I think it really depends on what our journey was into scripture in terms of like the methodology side, because sometimes we might read books uh, where scholars are applying their methodology. Mm -hmm. Same with articles. We read books or articles where they're applying their methodology, but they're not necessarily explaining their methodology. Mm -hmm. It's in other words, it's the behind the scenes of how they do what they do. And I've learned that there is a difference between doing something well and explaining what you do in a manner where we can try to emulate it. Yeah. To yeah. use a sports analogy, it's it's shocking. Uh, I would say how many um, of how many of the best athletes are not great coaches. Yeah. And I say shocking. True. It's really more surprising, right? Because we would yeah. think, man, if you're so good at basketball, surely, surely you'd be a great, be a great coach. coach. Yeah. But sometimes the the skill sets don't overlap in a way that we might think is intuitive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh. You know, for example, Steve Kerr was a teammate of Michael Jordan. No one would ever even say that Michael Jordan was, or sorry, that Steve Kerr was a better player than Michael Jordan. Far from it. Yet Steve Kerr is arguably, he's one of the greatest coaches of all time. Mm -hmm. So not saying he was a bad player. He made it to the NBA. That's really impressive. But he's a great coach. So to me, I think uh, we always want, it doesn't, by the way, it also doesn't mean we don't want to watch Michael Jordan and learn how to play. It doesn't yeah. mean he doesn't have good thoughts to say. Some people are just simply better at teaching and others are better at doing. Yeah. And the way we learn from them is a little bit differently. So someone, I think a scholar who's amazing at the exegesis, I'm going to read their articles, read their books, and just see how do they how do they present their research? How do they what insights do they see? But at some point I also want to learn from people who are good at giving the behind the scenes of the process. 
And I think Mathieu Richel, he's one of those people that he's very good at explaining yeah. what the process actually looks like. And I think everyone needs to have at least one person in their life who's like that. Yeah. And you know what else it does is it helps us to understand why interpretations exist and how we got to that level of interpretation. And I think that this this becomes very helpful uh, for my my students who are going much deeper into the the text, doing actual exegesis on the original languages, for example, uh, or even just doing good hermeneutics on on the English text that they may have, so having not been trained uh, in the original languages. It's um, it's important to know that when we're coming at different um, levels of interpretation on the same text, we have to be able to explain how we got there and why we got there, and the methodology becomes very important um, in, in that respect. So. I think it's um, it's it's something that we don't teach just lay people, for example. We sort of just offer interpretations and suggest that that is the interpretation. Maybe this is what preachers do, mm -hmm. I think. Uh, and they don't provide their exegetical methodology or how they ever uh, came to that result in the text. But lo and behold, the moment you sit down and start talking about it with a group and everybody gets to share a thought or an idea, it's at that point that exegesis uh, methodology, exegetical methodology, becomes very important uh, in order to understand why the interpretation is what it is. So, That's really good. And I think it yeah. also makes it easier to be uh, holistic more consistently. Yeah. Because good. if we don't understand methodology, then we're, we, don't, we don't understand how all the different tactics that we do fit into a broader philosophy. Right. And once we learn a methodology, we can realize, okay, here's the, here's a, here are patterns of analysis mm -hmm. that fit within a coherent framework that we mm -hmm. can apply yeah. uh, in, into that sort of system. No, that's, that's really good. Excellent. No, very good. All right. Let's do number three, huh? Yes. Let's do so that. number three, the question was this. So what sets your exegetical book apart from others? And uh, the response was this, it's practical nature and its scope. That's what sets it apart. It's practical nature and its scope. My impression is that most authors of handbooks of exegesis spend a lot of time discussing the history of the field and addressing theoretical considerations, after which they give only a few, a very few concrete examples. Very true. I tried to do exactly the opposite. Be practical put myself in the shoes of a student and explain with the greatest possible clarity in pragmatism how to proceed. But several colleagues in the U.S. found that what set my book apart from others is that it takes into account both traditional approaches to exegesis and more recent methods, such as feminist and post-colonial exegesis. Let me add that I although, let me add that although I have my own faith, I made a point of writing a handbook that is neutral with regard to religious affiliation. It can be used by Jews, Christians, non-religious people, etc. Yeah, we've already talked a lot about the practical nature and the scope. We went through the outline there. Definitely some strengths. Yeah. Um, what I find, what I really like about this, especially as he ends here, uh, um, mentioning that this book can be used by all sorts of different faith traditions, um, is that it really puts exegesis where it belongs, and that is uh, in the realm of the community. And uh, that that is often forgotten by many of us, though I think on a practical level, it's lived out by many of us, that we're all part of communities that have very serious and, how do I want to put it, very serious and maybe even ignorantly agreed upon or unknowingly agreed upon methodologies with regard to interpretation. And um, this, in what he has laid out, uh, allows for students to find the practicality that is needed in order to move into a deep study of Scripture. Um, and it's not necessarily just based on uh, or is not necessarily just written for, as he says, uh, one religious affiliation, which means we can all employ these in our different communities um, uh, for interpretive measures. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. That's really mm -hmm. helpful. We, I mean, just step aside from scripture, you know, why, why do we think or believe what we think or believe about anything? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not an advocate of doing it and uh, deconstructing your whole life because that's an endless pursuit. 
But there are certain things that are really pivotal and important in our life that we want to understand. Like, why is it that I or we think a certain way? And, you know, we might, our, you know, the way we approach life might be an epic ship on the seas of the ocean. And it's mostly pretty airtight. Um, but we might be shocked at how did those barnacles get there? When did, when did, when did those get attached? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, look, if scripture for those of faith, if scripture is really the, one of the, like, it's, it's a core foundational source of doctrine, then let's make sure that we do the due justice of let's go back to scripture. Yeah. Um, Maybe that's what you're getting at. I, yeah, 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 know. somewhat. I mean, of course, maybe I'll just use my own life. I mean, I was raised Roman Catholic, and I'm in the charismatic Pentecostal tradition. So, you know, I can have one side of me in my in my family line or just in myself saying, you're not reading it in a Catholic way. You don't read the text like the Catholic would read that or interpret that particular text. Or I'll get the Pentecostals over here saying you're not employing Pentecostal hermeneutics the way you should be to interpret that particular text. Uh, and then, of course, the scholar over here is saying, but that's not what the ancient Near Easterner was saying or thinking here in this particular light. And it just shows then that we need agreed upon methodologies, no matter what community we're coming from, that we can all sort of that we can all sort of engage with um, so that we can, in fact, come to good and proper interpretation of the text for our community so that we can actually have something to stand upon to say, yes, this is the best way to read the text. We did a recent episode, for example, and we're going to do a recording on this, but a recent episode on Genesis 6, 1 to 4, with the Bnei Elohim and the Benot Adam. So you have the uh, daughters of men and uh, you have the sons of God. And um, there are different ways to interpret that particular text, but it is very much based on your exegetical methods uh, with regard to the Hebrew and the text that is there. So that is a the, that is an episode to come. We will we will do exegesis on that, and uh, and even show two fully different interpreta interpretations of the Hebrew words and what they mean um, in an episode to come. Didn't you know, we do that episode and it was released? We, we did and we released it, but I think we should do a full on sort of Sethite view versus ah, what is actually yes. written. Yeah. So That's that right. we did some exegesis there, but I think we're going to do a full on I'm here excited. are the two various interpretations of this, but it, it requires a certain methodology uh, at the core. And, um, and in any case, I, I know we're um, sort of pushing this example uh, to the level that we are here at this moment, but his book does a fantastic job of, of really laying out both traditional exegesis and the newer forms of exegesis so that you can just be aware. The, this is the way that people are interpreting the text. And the reason why they're interpreting the text is because in this particular way is because of the methodologies that they're using. Uh, sure. And here they are. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and, and that's helpful for understanding people. Like, if, if you know what someone's worldview is, it probably helps explain why certain interactions that you, certain discussions you have go the ways that they go. Sure. Um, you know, and so I imagine in, in a somewhat similar way, you can start seeing if, okay, there's certain people who they tend to reach certain conclusions and it's, oh, you know, they tend to to go with a certain type of methodology and helps yeah. understand understand things better in that way too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Okay, let's go to the next question here. We asked him, your book reads like a true manual, clear descriptions of each part of the process with instructions for every step and corresponding examples to illustrate. Can you share a bit of what this style looks like in your book and why you decided to take this approach? Here's what he says. When I was studying math, most handbooks were abstruse and only gave very schematic demonstrations of theorems because they assumed the students were so smart that it would be almost degrading for a professor to explain in too much detail. But there was this math professor in Paris who wrote a series of handbooks in which he unabashedly explained everything in full detail in a relaxed manner, as if he was talking to the reader. The result may seem less classy than lofty expositions, but this is really what students need. I tried to do the same with the exegesis of the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament. People who want to read uh, my more sophisticated essays can read my scholarly articles, but for this handbook, I decidedly sided with the students. 
I have to agree with that. I mean, having read through it, he definitely sides with the students. And that's why I think I can't wait to get it in the hands of students to to see them use it in real time for practical purposes. So, yeah, um, there's probably a good lesson in there for all of us who are trying to communicate uh, valuable ideas and for the purpose of this episode, communicating the Hebrew Bible with other people. Sometimes it's just really good for us to remember, how do I add value to others? It's not about how smart do I come across? It's about how, how do I look at who my audience is and to the best of my ability, how do I communicate in a way that adds value to them? Mm. And he does a good job with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, and and I think he's being honest to it. There, there is a time for the complexity and the scholarly work that he, that he takes on. And he mm-hmm. says, if you want to read that, you can go find those articles and do it. But for this one, it's definitely for those who are definitely, are, you know, a student hasn't been trained enough potentially to, to dive into the technical languages of the, of a, of a more scholarly article. And, and, um, and so that's why I think this book is excellent. And, uh, and it's certainly great too what he mentioned uh, even in the previous question about um, how some of these handbooks really deal with the history of interpretation and hermeneutics and exegesis and Fascinating though those histories are, as I mean, when I teach hermeneutics here, biblical hermeneutics, I love going through the history of interpretation and and the hermeneutical method. It's a lot of fun, but uh, it is verbose and it does sort of just weigh you down uh, uh, at, at the very beginning of of going through a handbook like that. So the fact that that he sort of intersperses it, I think, throughout the book more than just starting there as a, as a real quality to the text. And I think that that in line with this question is, is quite good that he decided we sided with the student on that one. So that's great. All right, let's go to the next question. Number five. So you do an excellent job at making the complex task of exegesis fun. Often complication can steal the joy from once eager exegetes. How do we keep a perspective that keeps us excited as we learn about all the factors of biblical interpretation? And here is his response. Perhaps a good starting point would be to avoid taking ourselves too seriously while taking the text seriously. (laughs) That's good. After all, we are just writing footnotes to spiritual and literary treasures. And as exegetes, we often can't do better than to put forward provisional hypotheses. But experience proves that studying biblical texts generally is an exciting task, during which we find actual gems, whether spiritually or literally. We are, I'm sorry, whether spiritually or literarily, we are confronted with existential questions. We like or dislike what we read. We can debate it. This never ends. And it can be an intellectually joyful experience. I can't help being impressed by the texts of the Hebrew Bible. They are often highly polished, evidently the result of a lot of work, and an inexhaustible source of study. That's why we're here, why we're doing what we're doing. (laughs) That's why we do a podcast on YouTube. That's why we have listeners listening to the podcast, too, uh, I might add. So it, it is true. It is a joyful experience. I mean... Think about it, Monty. I mean, how long have you been in this now of, of just serious study of the Hebrew Bible? Yeah, that's a good question. Depends what serious counts. I mean, if if you imagine, um, you know, a, a five-year-old running around with a cape around his neck and a yellow lightsaber trying to pretend to be Bible Man, you know, does that <laughs> does that count the beginning of my serious Bible study? <laughs> um, in all seriousness, uh, no, I... I think fun really does matter. I think that's, you know, that's because I know for me, like there was a level to which I always valued scripture and was reading and learning. Um, but it wasn't, you know, I I got, I started getting exposed to academic education Mm -hmm. on the Hebrew Bible during my undergraduate degree in a cursory way. Mm -hmm. It was not my formal education though. I was a communication major, right? I was a modern Hebrew minor. And I basically listened to podcasts by people like Tim Mackey or N.T. Wright, for example, people who are Ph.D. scholars who are doing a good job of reaching general communities with good information. But it wasn't until after my undergraduate degree where I really started getting exposed to the whole discussion and methodologies. So, yeah, there's a marked difference for me. But I'll say this. There were some times during my master's degree where the joy level was lower. And it's, and I think often it was because 
um, because I felt like I had to figure out the answer right now. Hmm. I felt like as I was learning some, there were certain components I wanted clarity because some of the ways maybe I viewed things were challenged um, based on just information and learning. Some of that was really fun. Some of that made it just, it was instant. Oh, this makes so much more sense. I'm glad I'm learning this. Other things I had to wrestle with more. Mm. And I think I had to learn to enjoy the journey mm. and know that this is, um, and that's okay. And yeah. speaking as, as a Christian, uh, you know, for me, I think we realize on the other side of the text is God. Mm. And for me, I think I had to realize that if I'm ever wrestling with the text, that's okay. Because ultimately it's just another way of me pursuing the fullness of who God is. Yeah. Amen. And even if sometimes that wrestle isn't, oh, I know exactly how to explain everything. That's still okay. Yeah. Because uh, who of us will fully understand every single detail of scripture? Who of us can fully experience and express all of who God is? And it's just taking a humility, humble pill is really good. And knowing <laughs> I'm just one human, have fun with the journey. Mm -hmm. I'll learn more. And some things take time. Some things are not right away. And that helped me have a lot more fun. And it helps mm. me today, right? Like if people ask me a question, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. That sounds fun. What, let's research that. Let's yeah. let's dig into it. See what we find. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Yeah, it's very good. There, there just is a joy to uh, to studying scripture, and and I think he's he's really making he's really making a good point here on this. Is that historically, I mean, look, we're 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 millennia into this. I mean, uh, people have been doing this for a long time, and the reason why. The texts exist the way they do. I have a Hebrew student. We read. We we meet twice a week for an hour, and we read Hebrew together uh, uh, over FaceTime, right? And we read a particular passage. We're going through Ezekiel now, but we're also doing some work on Exodus uh, as we were reading through Exodus before that. And uh, we just go very slowly, and we just read every verse in Hebrew, and we discuss and we talk, and it helps it helps her keep her Hebrew going. And it's very interesting here how much fun that that really is, how much joy that that brings. And as he says, the treasures that come out, both one, the the spiritual treasures that you get, of course, because you're reading the word of God, but two, and you're studying at a very uh, high depth, but two, um, the literary tre the, the, the literary treasures that you, you realize, wow, the writers, the redactors, the, the people who put this together, this is brilliant material. It's not just uh, archaic nonsense that can't be understood. There's real brilliance here. And of course, I'm sure we all think this and know this, but we 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 sometimes think of the ancients as if they were uninformed, as if they weren't enlightened, if you will. I know we've talked about this a lot, but when you study the Hebrew text at a very high depth like this, uh, you can't help but notice like we are dealing with, uh, with some real brilliance here uh, that just continues to come forth. And it, it brings real joy. Lots of fun to study it. So it really does. Yeah, it really does. That's really good. Great thoughts. Great thoughts. Number okay. six. Number six. What skill of exegesis do you feel is underutilized in academia? What about the church? I was really excited to ask him this question, by the way, because we, you know, we we think about both both of these groups often as we prepare content. And um, I was curious to see his thoughts on this. Here's what he had to say. In the context of academia, what strikes me the most is the fact that scholars are often over-specialized and run the risk of neglecting methods and approaches they don't practice themselves. It makes perfect sense to be specialized, of course. It's inevitable in academic research, and I have my own areas of expertise. But what we can do is to keep an open mind and try to learn a bit about other approaches. The texts have many facets and therefore require a multiplicity of methods to be explored. And it pains me to think that due to our limited skills, we impose limits on, or sorry, we impose limits to understanding them. In the context of the church, my sense is that preachers don't make the most of the biblical text. Exegesis and preaching are often kept apart in their minds, whereas I think there should be a continuum. Mm -hmm. But to achieve that, exegesis professors could talk a bit more about the contents of the text, not just the historical and formal aspects. And preachers could read more exegesis. When I, when I assign an exegetical essay to my students, I give them the possibility, if they're interested, to conclude with a reflection on the contemporary relevance of the text, which can take many forms. Yeah, good. I wonder if you could comment a bit on over-specialization 
um, in yeah. academia? What do yeah. you, does that resonate with you? Maybe not. What What are your thoughts? Well, it it is certainly uh, certainly a trend. Look, I think I think he's right. He says to an extent that that is definitely required in academia. You have to specialize, and he has his own expertise. And um, on the positive side of of over specialization or specialization in general uh, is just the fact that there's so much here in Hebrew. Just take Hebrew Bible and the ancient Near Eastern side of study. Right, there is so much that can be done on a scholarly level that specialization is required because no one person has the time or the um, maybe, or even the talent to be able to do it, uh, to do it all uh, and to be um, at a level of, uh, of such general knowledge that they could specialize in everything in that particular way. Um, uh, so the, there is that on the positive side that we do need the specialization. But on another level, the the, the weakness of that is that when, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of us, I would say scholars coming out of uh, the PhD land, um, they have specialized. That's what they did. They studied one particular thing for several years and they wrote about it. And that was the specialization that they received. Um, but the tools that they have, the tools that they have, are to, in fact, develop a life that goes beyond the specialization. And I think that that is the important aspect. And it would be good for academics, I think, to begin to remember that this is a community and that we, though are specialized in our areas, that we uh, must come to a place where um, it is good to understand the other methodologies and the other aspects and ways in which people are reading the text. Um, if for no other reason, it, it gives you more scholarship, more things to write about. Uh, and for good reason, it, uh, it allows you to be in um, camaraderie and good scholarship with, with other scholars and other specialized uh, uh, areas. One, one area where this really shows itself um, within our area is certainly Hebrew Bible and then Assyriology or just ancient Near Eastern study. So, you know, some of us who were trained in Hebrew Bible and ancient Near Eastern studies, we, we aren't Assyriologists. I would never call myself an Assyriologist, but have done extensive study within Near Eastern study uh, and love it and love working with the Assyriologists the Assyriologists of their scholarly work, using it uh, in my own study of the Hebrew Bible. But there is nonetheless a, a, a definite line between the specializations, uh, between just reading the Hebrew Bible and, and Assyriology. Or we could go even closer to home and talk about, oh, well, your Hebrew Bible, you're not Second Temple, or your Second Temple, you're not New Testament, and this is the sort of specialization that you get. And I think part of the issue for that, especially for the church, uh, is that you'll get scholars who specialize in Second Temple literature, and they, they can understand the New Testament from a Second Temple perspective, but they've never touched, for example, the Hebrew Bible or the ancient Near East. And, well... Their Second Temple world's reading in a Hebrew Bible and an ancient Near Eastern text, that might be important for interpretation, you know, uh, and it might lead to different levels of interpretation. So, um, so yeah, I just think that, but, 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 but back to what we're talking about with exegesis, it's because of the specialization that we have so many different models of exegetical uh, methodology that we we have to have a book like what Rochelle here has, is uh, created, Professor Rochelle here has created, um, because it helps us to understand the different specializations. So uh, in one sense, it's not going anywhere. We need and we have over-specialization, and it's not going to disappear anytime soon. Um, you have it in the medical field, for example. I mean, it used to be you were just a medical doctor, but now you're either a general practitioner or you are you specialize in whatever. I mean, pick, pick and choose. Well, There's my wife has an your example. Your wife, for example. She's, yeah. she's a, my wife's a pediatrician. Mm -hmm. She's a nursery specialist. Exactly. So her job is seeing infants on the first few days of life. And that's it. Mm -hmm. so after the first few days, they go to somebody else. I mean, yeah. talk about specialization, right? Like, can you imagine yeah. how, for how long of human history have we had societies where it's made sense to have someone whose job is to only see babies on the first few days of life. Yeah. And then someone it, else takes on from there. It's so true. And what you have there, though, I think, is that you have the specialization because we have had such a fruitful and uh, how do I want to put it? Sort of a, a, a 
a time in which study in our culture has allowed this sort of specialization because, you know, there are times we had to overlook certain things. We were ignorant of it, but because we were able to get more specialized, now you have a doctor like this, a medical doctor that is yeah. only focused on the first few days of life because that matters. There are reasons why we need that to happen. Same with yeah. exegesis and same with the study of scriptures. The more that we know, the deeper the specialization goes. But his point is valid. Uh, we need to always remember to come back and see the whole picture and try to be those scholars yeah. that can work within various specializations, at least work within it, if not be specialized. Totally. Yeah. Totally. What did you think of that? What did you think about what he says here about the church? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, first, I just have to say, such a thorough response from you. I'm so glad to have your expertise on this podcast. Um, well, you thank know, your you. PhD knowledge. It's so thorough, so so good. I mean, you know, I, I think the I just agree with everything you said. I I can't re react to everything you mentioned. What I will say, I think people should use specialization as an opportunity to remember the body of Christ, to remember the overall community that we can lean on each other and that's okay. And mm. not give in to the path of pride, which is it's the person who can't say, I don't know. Mm. And the person who's refusing to say, can you help me? Mm. Because I think whether we're academics, whether we work at churches, whether we just take scripture seriously, anytime we take something with like, we're passionate about it. And it's a part of our identity makeup, because I'm a teacher, I'm a pastor, or I st I've studied the Bible a long time. We it, it becomes harder and harder to say, I don't know, but you know what? Someone else might know. Or, <laughs> you know, I might have an answer, but you yeah. know who'd be even better if exactly. you talk to them yeah. about it? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not It's not a, a black, and it's not like a, a binary thing, right? Like right, there right, are right. times in my classes where I'll say, you know what, let me give you my response. But I would... And, and I give their, I give my response, but I say, you know, who'd be perfect if you want to get a really, I think an even better, deeper answer, go talk to Dr. Nathan French, because mm. he's really good at talking about these things. I do that frequently in my classes, or mm. there might be a different professor at our university mm -hmm. that today I recommended some people want to talk about the modern Middle East. Mm. Today, you should talk to Dr. John Swales. He has amazing thoughts on this. <laughs> so I think, I think instead of viewing ourselves as deficient because of our specialization, we see the blessing that it is, and let's happily include other people, yeah. whether that's in our own formation or that of others. Yeah. Bringing it yeah. back to the book, what I'll say is, again, no matter where you find yourself, whether you feel like you have no, no specialty yet, and you're still trying to figure out what you want to specialize in, or there are a couple areas you feel great in, but you want to bone up on some other areas and get a little stronger in, um, one of the ways we can find clarity is not just through thinking, but by action. And I think this is a book that will help you take action and through his examples, getting into the text, trying out the different methods, and you'll see which methods do I enjoy the most and just start there. Yeah, Just start exactly. by including. Yeah. So to me, like to give a really small example, the most recent development for me methodologically has been applying the history and culture of the ancient Near East as methodology within the Hebrew Bible studies. Mm. And right, that's been the last few years for me. And. Now I'm I'm spoiled because I have Dr. Nathan French's phone number who, and you guys who don't. taught you to do this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what, it could be as simple as when I'm reading a text, I send a text to Nathan and be like, <laughs> "Hey, any resources you recommend for fill in the blank, whatever?" Or, "Hey, what do you think about this?" Even if you don't have it, have someone's contact information, you can at least just figure out what what's a good book. Find mm. find something that someone like Nathan recommends about ancient Near East history and just add it to your library. Mm. And so I have a commentary series he recommended. So now when I'm studying a text, I have one other commentary that I'll look at. Mm. And it's just, it's such small, simple steps we can take yeah. to chip away yeah. at the sculpture we're trying to create of yeah. good, beautiful, holistic, and mm -hmm. moving exegesis for the people in our lives yeah. and for our own enjoyment. Absolutely. Absolutely. So well said. And I think Professor Rochelle's done a great job here of saying, and that's with the bibliography, especially throughout each of the different methodologies, yes. his bibliography shows, look, you may be specialized, but hey, students, you need to be aware of all of these various scholars and what they're doing. And here is the literature that you need to go to it. I want to make one comment, though, before we move on, on the, um, with regard to biblical, sorry, with regard to exegesis,
uh, and um, pastors. Didn't he mention that here? Was that in the previous? He did. No, exegesis yeah. and preaching. Here we are. Exegesis and preaching are often kept apart in their minds, whereas I think there should be a continuum, talking about preachers um, with regard to uh, giving of sermons. And this is, I, I can't, I can't stress this enough. And I stress it with my students who are wanting to go into ministry, most of them. And of course I can, I can tell you from practice. Now I, you know, I, I, when I got into this, I wanted to be a preacher. I mean, I, I felt like I was called to ministry and, and ended up going the professor route because teaching was such an emphasis within my gifting areas within the church. I would always want to teach more than preach, but I have noticed even in certain contexts where I've done preaching, even of, of recent date, the exegesis is just there because that's what I do for a living. And I think we need more of this within much of the church again. I mean, there are church traditions that really stress this, but allowing the exegesis to be very much, as he puts, a continuum with regard to the sermon that uh, the the hard exegetical work is actually coming out because what you need to be giving to the sheep is real food of the text, right? It's the text yep. that needs to be feeding the sheep. Uh, and it is good exegetical work uh, that gets you there. And 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 just know the sheep want it. They they will sit and they will listen and they will they they will try to understand. Uh, that exegesis come forward, and the Holy Spirit will really bless it as well. So we we can't emphasize that that continuum needs to be there, um, as as he stresses uh, for for preachers when it comes to exegesis. So I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. In fact, look, if we respect Scripture, we need to approach Scripture on its own terms. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that That's that good. involves doing a thorough exegesis because we have a responsibility as communicators of Scripture to, you know, for example, speaking about preachers again, and mm -hmm. people who are pastors, yeah, there's a responsibility to give them the, I like the, the food analogy you use, right? To give the yeah. good food mm -hmm. to, to people. Uh, and so, yeah, good. I think no matter what you're preparing for, that exegesis, at the very least, it is the foundation yeah. of the building, which you are building yeah. for that sermon. That's right. And you do not want a faulty foundation. No. It doesn't mean that every single thing you study during the week will make its way into Correct. the communication, but at the very le at the very least, it is the foundation that 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 will ensure that what you are giving them and what they're going to stand on yeah. is firm and strong. Yeah. It doesn't collapse on itself in their yeah. lives when they take people who are doing this whole eisegesis thing. Yeah. Oh, and, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. That's I agree. so good. Yep. So we'll never be perfect. You know, we'll, we all, no. you know, we'll, we, you know, we're going to fall short in different ways, but let's, let's, let's attempt the correct thing. If that makes sense, at least attempt yeah. to make sure we're doing holistic exegesis and not just well, and, whatever we want. And for those, for those preachers, because look, when you, you know, this month you've been in ministry, I've been in ministry, like what you have set, you have seven days, you preach on one of those days and yeah. you get a little bit of rest and you got to start the preparation all over again. Yeah. Right. So exegetical work, it can be difficult for ministers and, and for those who are in the preaching ministry, um, get his book. This yeah. helps see these methodologies that we give students, uh, the abilities to actually exegete the text. It's, it's a time saver because now all yeah. of a sudden you have the tools that you need to quickly move through the text and to get the yeah. meat that you need to get, uh, in order to give to the, give to your, your followers. So. One piece of advice I would give on this note, because again, especially for pastors, but anybody else, you're busy, right? You, you're not just preparing a message. You're, you know, you're having to lead an organization and everything yeah. that comes with that. Um, one advice I might give people is once you sift through a book, like for example, Mathieu Richel's book, you sift through it enough. I think it might be wise to just choose one method you want to start. You want to start applying a little bit mm, more. That's good. As opposed to trying to add all 10, for example, there are more than 10, but just if you're trying to apply 10 things at one time, it's hard to apply any of them with any efficacy. Mm. Whereas if you start applying one, focusing on that, not neglecting others intentionally, if it comes up, but really focusing on the met one method and just start adding it. And once you do that enough, it'll feel really solid. It's similar to, I'll use another sports analogy. If someone who has the ball and you're trying to score, there are a lot of different moves you could practice to get past your opponent to try to score. 
But if you try 15 different moves sporadically, you never master any of them. But once you master one move, you know, then they have to try to stop that move. Once they do that, you practice a move that works off of that move. And you, that's how you can build out to become a really dynamic offensive athlete. And I think as a pastor, uh, just my recommendation, I'm not saying that's the only way to look at it, but I think if you, uh, not like you have to spend years on one method, but if you just spend even like a month, right? This month, I really want to sharpen a little bit of my fill in the blank methodology. Yeah. It might, you might make some more progress. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good, uh, uh, good suggestion. So, okay. The next question is this navigating the conversation of biblical sources can be difficult for people of faith. What was helpful for you finding clarity on the compositional history while maintaining your faith? He says this, I know this struggle by experience. What I found helpful is the fact that it is the Bible itself that forces us to admit a compositional history. It's good. <laughs> Many complexities in the text require us to admit that the text underwent several stages of redaction. Therefore, admitting this is honoring the Bible. It also means that the Bible is more sophisticated than we often intuitively think. In this regard, I admire the work of www.thetorah.com, where, among other things, Jewish scholars talk about the confrontation between their faith and the scholarly study of the Hebrew Bible. Excellent. Yeah, excellent. That's the shortest way to put it, right? If we want to oh, respect Scripture, yeah. what, is, what does Scripture say about itself? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we can disagree on our theories of exactly what compositional stuff looks like, but right. at the end of the day, we're reading the text, and what does the text say about itself? And I understand, depending on what our background is, this may or may not be difficult to deal with. Um, but I think that's a great response from him. I really oh, it like really is. Yeah, no, it really is. And uh, there's there's nothing better to do than to put it back on the text. Like the reason why we have these compositional theories is because of the it's because the text requires us to have that when you dive deeply into it. I mean, even with if we were to talk about, for example, source criticism, which uh, always receives sort of a bad reputation of late uh, and you get into sort of the Lhousian theory and, and you get into source, the, you know, JPD source and all the other redactions that, that they would add to it. And um, you find that, you know, there seems to be a sense in which some of the Jewish exegetes were even stumbling upon this themselves, right? It's just a deep reading of the text, the medieval Jewish exegetes, a deep reading of the text um, begins to show that there is compositional history. And and the truth is it outright states it. I mean, it states it in various levels. We have, if you want to know about more about such and such a history, you can go read this particular source, right? You know, that we see in Kings and other places. So, yeah, really good. Really yep. good. Yeah. Let's go to our next question. Okay. Number eight. Can you expound on the tension? Number eight. Can you expound upon the tension between history and a text received at a later date? in how this impacts the exegetical process. So a related follow-up question is, how should exegetes go about comparing a later text with much earlier textual data from the broader Near East and West Semitic world that is comparable in dating to the purported time of the story present in a later text? So his response was this, it was, it was a great response. So what underlies these questions is the fact that a story may have been written much later than the time of the events it narrates. Hence the distinction between the time of redaction or times of redactions and the time of reference, i.e. when the events are supposed to take place. Why is that important? Because it creates the possibility for various situations. A text can be late but based on an old source and reflect at least a kernel of actual events. A text can be late and be the product of a series of redactions staggered over centuries. A text can talk about a distant past, but actually be largely influenced by the time of the writer. In such a case, the text yields important historical information on the latter time be it only about ideas and conceptions current at that time. In short, this potential distance between the time of redaction and the time of reference makes the life of exegetes interested in history 
uh, a bit spicier. <laughs> those <laughs> to are answer, his actual words. Those are his actual words. Yep, that. that's great. To answer, uh, get some French cuisine in there or something. Yeah. So anyways, <laughs> to answer your second question, obviously, if a text purports to speak of an early time, but is actually inspired by events and practices of a later time, exegetes may have the wrong target if they look for extra biblical sources concerning the time of reference. At the same time, the issue of chronological distance should be put into perspective because practices, beliefs, and traditions may last over centuries. As a result, you sometimes find data in old texts that can shed light in late texts. In sum, exegetes should keep an open mind. What a thorough, <laughs> well, thorough yeah, response to our question. That really was. Really Very well good. Very good. I mean, he handled all the different angles about how we approach this in about as concise a way as you can. No, he can. A couple paragraph yeah, response. That was excellent. Yeah, very good. If those interested in more, he goes through the whole history section in his book, mm -hmm. um, you know, and you can see how he approaches this. Um, so again, like, like many of the areas within the methodology, there are certain aspects that people may or may not agree with or land on the exact same page. There's certain, yep. um, certain elements of this, like one common example is prophecy. You know, for some people, the way they approach the historical side of this comes from an idea that, you know, would someone speak about, about events that seem to be in the future? Could they do that? Um, how would they have the ability to do that? Would God empower them to do that? Would he not? Um, would they do that? And then it brings up a whole discussion about how do we date certain prophetic texts? Yeah. Uh, but you're not going to find total agreement on that. So it's a conversation no. to engage. Yep. Very good. Question nine. Does your expertise in inscriptions and archaeology play a role in this book? If so, in what way? He responds with, yes, my interest in these aspects helped me when writing several chapters. In the chapter on literary genre, I try to help the reader find writings from the ancient Near East that can be compared to texts in the Hebrew Bible. In this chapter, or in the chapter on history, I talk about the comparison between biblical passages and epigraphical texts or archaeological findings. It did not hurt to have written a book on the subject, the Bible and archaeology, exclamation <laughs> point. Shameless plug for another book that he has written. Exactly. Uh, it's fun seeing how our expertises come to play and no. impact the things that we do. And honestly, it was really nice in this book to see that he had um, th these uh, this particular particular interest, and in it showed very well in the methodology how you should you should use some of this methodology. So, um, I, I'm thinking, for example, the uh, iconographic texts of the ancient Near East, and and how important that is for understanding and interpreting certain passages within the text itself. So it's great. Okay, number 10. Is there anything you would like to say about your book or any words of wisdom or encouragement for exegesis of the Hebrew Bible? I'd like to encourage those who are still in the early stages of studying the exegesis of the Hebrew Bible. This field is much more varied than you may believe. There is an amazing variety of texts to study and plenty of approaches and methods to do that. I found fascinating insights in all the methods I present in the book even in those I was less familiar with. I encourage you to try at least to learn a bit of each, even if you will later specialize in one or a few. Some great advice. And I can't emphasize enough to not be overwhelmed by all the methods. I think it's, yeah. I think it's great to be at very least exposed to all of them. Uh, but ultimately, we're probably going to specialize in one or a few. Um, we will utilize some others to be holistic. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that's just realistically how things go for yeah. people. Yeah. And but, I think, yeah. I think by reading this book, what, 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 what happens is you're introduced to the different methodologies of interpretation. Ergo, when you are reading various interpretations of a text, it, the bare minimum, you can at least understand what the methodology is that's being used so that you can have a discussion. Uh, there's nothing worse uh, then argumentation and debate when two methodologies are clashing and that really <laughs> is the issue. Like if we could just look at it from the perspectives of the methodologies, uh, then we'd be good to go, you know? So, 
Um, anyways, it, it's a, it's a good idea uh, to be to to have a wide understanding of the methodologies. And this book does a fantastic job of introducing you to each of them while giving you all of the bibliography that you need to specialize in each. Yes. Or to begin yeah. that specialization. Yeah. yeah, the bibliographies of every chapter are great because it's not just here are the sources I used yeah. to write this chapter. He, he makes a unique bibliography that is here's what I recommend if you want to get better at blank. And it's not just a generic, okay, end of the chapter, all, right. all the different things I mentioned, one of these covers that he actually lists out. If you're yeah. wanting to know more about the Phoenicians, here is a recommended source. <laughs> if you want to know more about this aspect of textual criticism, here is the source. Like it's very precise. So I find that really helpful. That's great. So uh, this has been a different kind of quote interview than normal, but hopefully you guys enjoyed this. As you can tell, we really like this book. Um, I think it's a great resource to engage with. And we have links to this book in the show notes below. And uh, we thank all of you for joining us on Hero Bible Insights. If you find value in this, share this with your friends and know that every month we get together with um, some of our, our patrons on Patreon to do a Bible mm -hmm. study. And if that's something you guys are interested in, you can also see the link to that below and become a part of our Hebrew Bible Insights book club and have a great time reading some of these texts. So that's all for today. And we'll see you guys in the next episode.